I think the real recognition is wars don't just start. You're not suddenly surprised by a war. You're not suddenly surprised when a friend stabs you in the back that was a friend. There is a road to that pathway of aggression. And what I wanted to do was understand it because I didn't think it was random and I didn't think it just happened. It was actually highly predictable. Hey guys, and welcome back to The State of It. So today we're gonna to be looking at one of Dad's other theories, polarization, the road to war. And Dad is not with me now, but he is back home while I am away. Dad, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, Winnie. It's Friday night and you energize me in a way no one else would. <laughs> that's because I haven't been working all day, but that's okay. We're living two very different lives. I finished my book, so that's, that, that's the height of my day. Anyway, Dad, moving straight into the podcast, can you describe briefly your theory, polarization, the road to war? Well, it's very simple. Think about a relationship between two people. And initially, they might have cordial relationship. And one person is, you know, maybe there's competition at work for a job as a CEO or a senior position. Two people work side by side. They think they're friends. One person becomes more ambitious. And slowly and surely, the relationship becomes just, you know, covertly tensioned. And then as that tension builds, the person driving it essentially starts to trigger in his primary polarization a recognition in the other person that this is going on. And at that moment, the other person is involved in secondary polarization and they both start to jostle it out and get their elbows out and they move towards the ultimate competition of who wins the seat. And that essentially on a, an empire basis or a national basis is the concept of how two nations increasingly have friction between them as they have a competitive dynamic. And I describe it as primary polarization for the system that's most expansive and the one that's contractive, secondary responsive polarization. Can you go into a little bit of detail with how you developed this theory? Yeah, well, I got to thinking about if you looked at the cycle of empires and the curve of empires, um, it's it, usually the story is along the lines of an expansive power then moving into the vacuum of a contractive power. So when you look at you know World War One and people say, well, everyone's to blame, or the Germans didn't do it, or World War Two, it's very simple. German expansive energy in the Second Reich and the Third Reich triggered two European wars. It triggered a war before with France too, because it was expanding. It's energetically, demographically, strategically, it sought more resources. And through that process of expansion, it sought to do it through military confrontation. And the encumbrant powers, France for the Franco-Prussian War in 1970 and the First World War in 1940, was in the way of that. And Britain was its ultimate target, so it could become the hegemonic power of the world. And that process of polar driven by the expansive energy then produce a secondary response and I saw it and I thought about it on a personal level how we interrelated as human beings and it was really just a much bigger fractal dynamic and part of that secondary polarization is making excuses for the aggression of the primary polarizing agent and then there was another part of it that fascinated me what happened to a society internally as it polarized 
And a very good example is Germany in the Third Reich. Obviously, it went through the 1929 crash. It suffered huge economic trauma as American money, which is little spoken about, had been flown into Germany after the First World War as America sought influence. And it rushed back to support the companies who were failing in the 29 crash. And the result was a barren economic desert and Germany collapsed. The Second Reich collapsed and people suffered from hyperinflation, as we know. And in that process, arose the Nazi party, the saviour of a lost Germany. And, and people at that stage allowed it to perpetrate. And once the Nazi party took hold of Germany, it fascinated me as to where the good Germans went. How did the good Christian Germans, Prussians, the people that would stand up for a different system, how did what happened to them? And quite simply, as the polarization internally, as the ambition of the country became more uniform, what was happening was the good Germans who would fight it one by one were picked off. The bold ones, the leaders were literally disappeared and the, and the less bold ones kept quiet. And before you knew it, the whole system aligned towards a Nazi Germany phenomena of expansion and their their right to dominate Europe and the world. So, now, so, so just talking a little bit about what you'd said a bit earlier, the three points that stuck out to me with the development of this was the five stages of empire model, your experience with humanity as a whole, and history. So out of those three three themes which one was the most important in formulating this theory? Well, well, in fact, they're, they're all interrelated. How does a rising power interact with a declining power that's created a power vacuum? It does it through a process of polarisation. And it, I think the real recognition is wars don't just start. You're not suddenly surprised by a war. You're not suddenly surprised when a friend stabs you in the back that was a friend. There is a road to that pathway of aggression. And what I wanted to do was understand it because I didn't think it was random and I didn't think it just happened. It was actually highly predictable. And the road to war is the, is, is peppered with the road of polarization. And so it, it, it is, it was, it was really about how to see the warning signals. And that interested me because I've been fascinated by wars as a historical measure of systems and how they interact with other systems. And I became absolutely convinced this polarization process was the mechanism of two societies moving towards a point where they dehumanized each other and therefore could justify going to war and killing the other side as if they were animals. And it's a human process but that tribes used to do. All civilizations that come up against another human civilization are able to do it. The primary polarizer, though, is the expansive energy, and it polarizes on the outside by its actions, and it polarizes itself on the inside, so all its members of society are aligned to the cause of the system. And it filters out anyone who stands against it. The more autocratic, you know, the more powerful that process is of expansion, the faster a dissident voice will disappear. And today it's very relevant because China under Xi especially has undergone a very similar process to Nazi Germany. And no one truly talks about it and they need to. Essentially, whatever facade the CCP perpetrated to encourage the Western world to fund its growth through manufacturing, to introduce it into its Western rules-based society, where it's run havoc within it, destroying its institutions. It is now very clear that, that if you look at where the internal mechanism of Xi's China is, is any dissident, anyone who speaks out against the cause of aggressive expansion and domination of the world, 
disappears, just as Hitler and the Nazi Party did. And they are really where Hitler's Nazi Party were in 1938, completely polarized. She's completely in control of the country. There will be, you know, maybe there might be a bomb plot. There were a few with Hitler, but they're unlikely to ever be successful. They're one or two individuals who try and the cloak of security is too tight. So the parallels between Germany, the rise of the Nazi party, China, the CCP, Xi, and and that complete polarization are uncannily similar. With polarization, you describe demographics as being a key, key driver behind polarization of the road to wars. Can you explain a little bit about how it is a driver and how it creates polarization? Exactly. Well, it's a great question because the engine behind these social rises and falls of empire are expanding demographics because the social system essentially has more human resources to expend in expansion and it has to feed those people so it has to grab someone else's resources to secure more land food and you know base um, resources to grow its industrial economy in the modern era and and so as populations grow the demand and the energy to push basically comes about and therefore to push you have to be organized so the system demands better leadership and all internal organization on a deeply unconscious level but it always does so demographics drive the expansion which drives primary polarization and therefore primary polarization drives the secondary response or secondary polarization of the collapsing hegemon that someone is seeking to overtake can you please go into a bit more depth with primary and secondary polarization well, okay, so the, the best way to kind of think of it, think of you as a teenager and think of me as an elderly gentleman moving into the, you know, the old age. Into the, the gentle vista of death. Exactly. So so a really good, and I thought about this quite a lot. So the way that the teenage period works is it has rebellion and rebellion at some level and some extreme is really about checking to see whether the values that the families imposed or, or created around them are really adapted and suited to the world that that teenager is moving into. And it's a questioning of all things to create adaptation. It's very healthy and you know it will, I think, goodness always happen. But in that process, the, the energy of I want to be successful, I want to expand the drive of the teenager that becomes a 20-year-old that starts to move is raw energy seeking application and seeking expansion. The energy of an older person is, is less vital with greater wisdom. And so imagine what happens is that you're in an office environment and this young buck who's 28, he's rocketed through the system. You know, he's really aggressive. And, you know, the older person in the office whose job he wants essentially thinks he doesn't have a chance. Initially, he rebuffs it. He makes, you know, excuses. But essentially, that conflict starts to exacerbate. And you've got raw energy versus wisdom or versus more wisdom, if there's any any good. And if they're not, they have less wisdom and less energy. But essentially, that's sort of the dynamic of the younger expansive system versus the older system that's sort of less energetic. And that is a good image of primary versus secondary polarization different energetic types. But you could actually have two younger systems 
polarizing each other, where one is more aggressive than the other, and that would be the primary polarization process. And the less aggressive part has to use defensive tactics to respond to that aggression as they move towards fisticuffs, knife fights, gunfights, or whatever else. So it's no different. Empires are not all old and young fighting. Sometimes two young systems fight for the same piece of territory. It sounds suspiciously like you just came up with that last little bit on the spot there, Dad, with that little, little break there. No, not at all. Sometimes you forget things are late on a Friday night without dinner in, in your stomach, you know. Um, it sounds a lot to me as if your you know, theory of systems and polarisation and indeed the five stages of empire model mirrors in a lot of ways a human life cycle. Would you say that's fair? It's absolutely right. I mean, one of the things that I often do when I speak about is essentially human systems are fractal. So essentially, if you look at, you know, humans have energy and wisdom in various combinations. As a baby, you have very little energy and you have very little wisdom. Hence, you need an awful lot of care for the early years. And as an old person, if you haven't you know, been unlucky, you have an awful lot of wisdom if you haven't forgotten it through some sort of horrible decay process and you have very little energy. And somewhere there's a curve of maximum impact. And that's exactly how an empire is. Somewhere at the top, there's a peak day where a human wakes up in bed and they don't realize it, but that was the peak of their energy and wisdom. And slowly they're sliding down a hill forever after. That's an empire too. So that human experience and the the experience of the largest fractal empire organization means that people should really start to realize their personal interactions, the way we view age, the way we view energy and, and competitiveness, they all have, when you put them into this fractal construct, suddenly you've got an awful lot more knowledge about how empires really work, because most people think they're so big they can't understand them, but they're actually fractals of our own existence, as you correctly pointed out. Is that relationship between human life and the life of a state accidental or purposeful i think fractal well it's not purposeful i think fractals are fundamental structures as we know within 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 the universe they they exist all over the place so i think in many ways if you just think think of think of you know the life cycle of hitler and the life cycle of the nazi reich actually they remarkably overlap because one man took control of it you know as he rose he built Germany into that place, and he was exactly coincident with the timing of the bigger system he created and then failed. So those would be good examples of actually complete alignment of the two. And only in a complete dictatorship could that ever happen. In a, in a broader-based system, one person's life cycle doesn't get the chance to impose itself on everyone simultaneously. You have a segment interacting with a segment. You describe something called the law of concentric competition when you talk about this theory. Can you please describe that in a bit of detail and go into the effect that it has on polarisation and the road to war? Absolutely. It's basically a circle, and the circle starts with, you know, your inner family. So let's pull that the first circle. And then the next circle is basically your larger family, you know, brothers, sisters, cousins, which then makes a clan. And then your next circle is basically the tribe, as in the group of clans. And the next is a nation. And the next is a religion. And the next is an empire. And they make concentric rings. And it's really simple because you will basically fight anyone. If there's a difference, like it's a fault line. So if there's a difference, you will fight anyone on the inside with anyone on the inside of the circle against the next circle level. So, within a family clans fight against clans 
or tribes fight against tribes or so it's basically this this process of my circle against the rest of the world as the fault lines develop and it's a very interesting concept as soon as you start to realize it that that's where human systems find their fault lines and that's where differences so look at britain during brexit we ended up with two clans on one side i would say a more left-brained iterative let's continue it's all okay we're safer in a bigger group of people even though the in the eu is completely at a dead stop economically more abundant non-democratic and then you've got a right brain group of people who said actually this isn't what we signed up for we believe in democracy we believe in sovereignty and at some level looks like the eu is completely stunted and we believe in ourselves and we'll back ourselves because we were at that cusp of that second stage of expansion in britain and those people backed britain by choosing to leave and the evidence is very clear that that released adaptivity and, and energy and latent national energy in Britain is unfurling itself despite the failures of some leadership, uh, people in leadership. And that's exactly how systems work. That's where the fault line was. You say that polarisation is determined by three factors, national character, a nation's position on the five stages of empire cycle and its geopolitical environment. So how do these factors actually directly affect polarisation? Well, obviously, the, the sort of degree of the, the energy driving polarisation, as in an expansive system, depends on where it is on the life cycle. And the most, the time when you see the most of energy of that type is after the first stage of regionalization, after a civil war, a delay, and when you're in expansion to empire, it's just a rampant driving energy. The next one is... Um, you know, if you have a small population and you live next to a giant, you can't do anything with that energy because a giant will crush you, which comes back to where and if there's a power vacuum, which allows you to expand into without being crushed because you need an environmental dynamic. So what tends to happen in those situations is that expansive energy becomes suppressed and latent and it waits until essentially the right moment. The Chinese have always been expansive, but they waited for the right moment when America contracted. So my argument is the baton of the orchestra is provided by the decline of the old hegemonic power and where it is. And basically the new system moves into that vacuum. And the third one was about national character, because it's very interesting that some systems cannot organize and self-lead and they actually constantly screw it up. So if you look at Argentina, it's a, you know, I hate to say it, I love Argentines, love the country. But if you look at its choices of leadership, They've been pretty dire for a long time. And everyone who gets to the top really just almost sabotages the endeavor. The Italians have the same blood and they have the same problem. Some systems are very good at self-organizing. And Britain, for example, is one of those countries. Having lost its empire and reached the bottom of its cycle in 1970, under the American umbrella of protection, it's been from 1970 to 50 years, only 50 years before we are back into an expansive mode. And that's to do with higher levels of self-organization and, and basically a higher quality of leader, although we all chuckle sometimes you look at our leaders today, but relatively compared to other systems. So that's part of national character. Would you, I mean, from my point of view, it almost seems as if the position on the empire cycle and the geopolitical environment of a nation could be merged into one factor no no because the empire cycle is the system itself the next factor is where that system sits within a geopolitical chessboard so you're saying it depends also on the surrounding state's position on the cycle as yes. well 
Yeah, exactly right. So there, so you cannot challenge a hegemon at the height of its power. It will crush you. You just you can't do it. You've got to be. You can only expand into the vacuum that its contraction creates. And America's contraction over the past ten years, twenty years, is a really clear clear case in point. If America had been where it was in two thousand, China wouldn't have had any space to expand into. But it's America's contractionism at China's gain. Apart from America and China, which is which is an obvious example of this, what other examples are there in history of this occurring? Well, there was a passive example that's always very interesting between Britain and America, because Britain's peak of empire, I would claim, was about 1870 when it had complete absolute power. And after 1870, you basically had the Prussians or the, the Germans coming to the fore in, on the continent and you as an industrial military power. And you had America having finished, it just finished its civil war, consolidating. And by the time in 1914, America's economic power was as great as the British Empire. It was equal, in fact. And Germany's was less so, but it had really militarized itself to the point of competition. So so Britain was either going to have to fight Germany or America. It was going to have to fight someone that was going to knock it off his throne and move into its power vacuum. The Americans did it subtly by pretending to be working together. Uh, well, they, you know, but what they're really doing is working together and taking whatever we had at the same time and making sure that we crawled out of World War II and they were the dominant Western hegemon. So that's a good example of primary versus secondary polarization that didn't produce a war, but the competition produced an, an outcome of one system standing and one system on its knees. Well, brilliant, Dan. Some examples there, some explanations that I finally understood after years of attempting to read your book and not really getting what was going on because there are a lot of big words that I couldn't spell. Um, thank you so much. And I think that's about it. You can go eat dinner now. Yeah, thanks, Winnie. Uh, you know, uh, that's a lovely, lovely offer. A stake, here I come. And, the, and this is very important because it's one of the theories that I think you and the listeners can really personally understand how you interact with other human beings and how conflict rises. And you'll notice that conflict is always created by one energy that triggers the process and the other then responds. Now, the other one may ultimately win the conflict, but they didn't start it. And watching out for primary and secondary polarization in your human relationships will make you more sensitive to those in geopolitics around us. Well, it's turning into a psychology lesson now. It's really morphing into a multidimensional podcast. Well, well actually, actually you, 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 you touch on it. But what's really interesting is the journey to write Breaking the Code of History was also an internal journey to understand my own human experience and perceptions. And from that knowledge, I was then able to see the patterns in the bigger fractals. So yes, I had to be familiar with internal psychology of the way we think and act as humans to understand the bigger systems around us. And once you start to do that and you see them as one continuum, it's amazing how these patterns stand out. Call me a polymath. You're a polymath, Win. No. <laughs> Go away. You're not funny. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. Okay, Winnie. Thanks very much indeed. As ever, you've been, you've been great. Fantastic. Proud of you. Cheers, Dad. David Murren specialises in using the past to predict the future and is an accomplished public speaker, hedge fund manager, and market trader. To date, he's authored three books, Breaking the Code of History, Lives Led by Lions, and Now or Never. His fourth, The Road to Wars, is due to come out in 2021. He also writes a blog on his website, www.davidmerrin.co.uk, where you can find more on his life, views and work.